The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. I hope you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep last night. I'm going to steal it back by preaching twice as long today. Uh, so we've come to the end of the series. Formed by Jesus is our series in the spiritual disciplines. And it's been convicting. Can we say amen to that? It's been a very convicting series for all of us. Uh, the only thing more convicting than listening to sermons on these topics is having to preach sermons on these topics. Uh, so just so you know, like we're right here along with you as you've heard these things. They've been just as convicting for us, those having to prepare these talks week in and week out. So for today's message, a couple of books I have found helpful, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer and The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. I'll be quoting him quite a bit, more so than usual in a, in a talk uh, as this talk goes on. So we cannot lose sight of the big picture. And so when I was thinking of a name for this talk, uh, I came up with this idea of aim at love, because we can't lose the spirit of why we do what we do. So what is the point of this entire series? I would say it's to aim at love. It's to love God more. And if that's not central, then we're not going to stay with these disciplines we've been talking about the last few weeks. Uh, we also see the same idea in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is our prayer for you, <clears throat> that as you take steps in these disciplines, that your love for God would abound and grow more and more, that you would grow in knowledge and discernment. We know sometimes whenever we go to the scriptures, we're often looking just for knowledge, and that's it, knowledge about God. But the point is to aim at love and to allow our love for God and others to grow more and more. Now, at times, after a series like this, you and I, we just tend to go, yeah, I need to get better, I need to do better. And so we just end up aiming at discipline. And that just, I think, falls short. So you aim at love, and discipline will follow. For those of you that have kids, you know this to be true, or any, any, whatever family situation you're in, you know that you discipline your life in various ways, whether it's with your time, whether it's with your money, other areas as well. You discipline things in your life. Why? Because you love your family. You want your family to grow and flourish, and so you do these things, maybe even getting up at like super early in the morning to take them to a practice, because this is all flowing, hopefully, from a place of love. And so you discipline your life in certain ways to express that. I think the same can be true for us spiritually as well. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, when we look closely at Jesus, we do not lose sight of this crucial point, the disciplines have no value in themselves. The aim and substance of spiritual life is not fasting, prayer, hymn singing, frugal living, and so forth. Rather, it is the effective and full enjoyment of the active love of God and humankind in all the daily rounds of normal existence where we are placed. The disciplines are a means to that end, for us to love God and to love others more and more. Now, sometimes in a series like this, it can sound like we're saying, you just need to eat your spiritual vegetables. You may not like it, but it's going to be good for you in the end. Now, um, don't miss the relational component here, because this whole series is an invitation 
for you to come and to commune with Jesus. And so our main text, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. That will be our only text for the day, is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And here's what it says. This is a famous passage. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I want you to do this with me, just for a moment. Just close your eyes. I'm going to read this again. I'm going to read it slowly. And as you hear the words, just allow your heart to meditate on the words of Jesus here. These words he says to his followers. So go ahead and close your eyes with me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The words that come to mind whenever we think of Jesus are words like Savior and Messiah. But some, at times we forget that he was also a Jewish rabbi. He was a teacher. Now, if you've been a first century Jew and Jesus showed up in your synagogue, you would have seen him in that light. You'd see him as, that's Jesus, that's the rabbi, that's the teacher. So every rabbi back then had a yoke, and that refers to the animal instrument you might be familiar with. There's a wooden stock with two loops. Animals put their head through that, and they might pull a wagon or a plow. But a, a rabbi's yoke was a way of interpreting the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, to follow certain rabbis would mean to take on a heavy yoke. As many of them, there were some liberals and there were some conservatives back then, and many would add restrictive rules to the law, and they would place those burdens on the people, and the people are being crushed under that heavy weight and expectation. But then Jesus comes along and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what do we notice about his invitation? Well, first, his invitation is personal. He says, come to me. It is not an invitation to simply believe some historical facts about Jesus, but it's to trust him as a person. And so he says, come to me. It's this very personal invitation to his disciples. Now, whenever you hear these words from Jesus, does this sound like the Christian life that we experience every day? Or does it sound like some, some future hope or wishful thinking? You know, maybe that will be true for me someday in the distant future. But is it possible that Jesus wants us to experience this rest in the here and now? And I think that he does. There's this key phrase in this passage, and if you blink, you'll miss it. And it's this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So what does that mean? Well, taking the yoke of a rabbi would mean that you become their disciple. That word in Hebrew is talmudim, meaning apprentice. And you know that kind of language. We think about different trades in our world. So if you're going to be an electrician, you're going to apprentice under an electrician and learn how to do what they do 
So you can go and have a similar kind of job or, of course, in the medical community, we call it residency. You learn how to do what someone else does so you can do the same kind of things that they do. And so that's the idea of apprenticeship. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to apprentice under Jesus. So what does an apprentice do? Well, they model their life after the one they're following after. Now, as I say this, many of you are thinking, wait, wait, time out. How do we model our life after Jesus? How do we do what Jesus did when he was kind of perfect and we're kind of not, right? And uh, he had some things in his job description that we will never do, like performing miracles and dying for people's sins, resurrecting from the dead. Like you and I can never do those things. So how can we live like Jesus? But he says it here. He says, learn from me. So does that mean just learn some principles about Jesus? Or does it mean to learn to live like Jesus lived? The nature of the rabbi-disciple relationship was that the disciple would learn to live like the rabbi. Now, if we can't teach how he taught and we can't do miracles, we can't pay for the sins of humanity, well, what's left? Well, it's things like being immersed in God's word, being in community, praying, fasting, solitude, Sabbath, being a person who's giving, being a person who lives on mission, that's been our series. Now, the skeptic might say, see, there you go again, giving us a list of rules, things to do. You're, gonna, you're doing what the Pharisees did by putting heavy burdens around their neck. That runs counter to the message of grace, you might say. Listen to these words by Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, and earning is an attitude. At times, we avoid disciplines because we're so worried that we're going to make it some legalistic code for ourselves. We're going to try to earn favor with God, and that is a danger we can fall into. But we can still do the action, but then confess our attitudes along the way. It does no good to say, you know, I'm I'm worried about what might happen if I adopt this kind of habit or practice in my life. And so I don't want to be legalistic and, and think I'm earning favor with God, so I'm not going to do it at all. Well, there's, a, there's an attitude behind that as well. And you can simply confess that to God as you still do the action that he's calling us to do, I believe. So there's no question that salvation can't be earned. We can't contribute anything to our salvation, but whenever we come to Christ, there are some things for us to do. We don't just you know, become a Christian and then start sitting on our hands or just let go and let God. Grace doesn't mean that we do nothing once we're saved. That's not how it works. Now, if we think that we're earning favor with God through the disciplines, that's, of course, a problem. But we can believe in salvation by grace alone, but still believe that God wants us to do some things in our walk with him. The two are not opposed to one another. So what is the secret to the easy yoke? There is a simple answer, but first I want to give you a metaphor to think about. Now, we know that young people, if you have young kids, you know that if they play a sport, they love trying to imitate what certain professional players might do. They might wear the same shoes, the same clothes. They might copy their behavior on the court or the field. 
maybe they practice a certain move and say, I want to do a move like this person that is my hero. And so they practice those things over and over and over again, trying to mimic the behavior of some of their heroes and favorite athletes. Now, in high school, I played a little bit of basketball. Now, it was my second sport, which is code for I wasn't very good. Now, in one of my first games, my mouth just got like super dry. I mean, extremely dry. Probably a combination of nerves and dehydration. And listen, it was bad. Like I couldn't, I'm trying to call for the ball. I can't even get a word out because my tongue's getting stuck on the roof of my mouth and I can't even talk in the game. And then in the next game, I had this thought. Now, don't laugh at this, but Michael Jordan always chews gum when he plays. Now, anyone here know what kind? Anybody? No NBA historians out there, I see. All right, it's watermelon bubblicious. Now, I Googled, that's how I know that, so don't feel bad. But the next game, I popped some gum in, and it wasn't the kind that he chews, but the result was complete disaster. Because during the first quarter, it's not helping at all. It made it much worse. My mouth was just as dry, and now there is gum everywhere on the inside of my mouth, stuck like a spider web on the inside of my mouth. And now I'm running up and down the court, trying to get it out, and I can't. I'm sticking my hand in there, trying to peel it out of my mouth, and I finally get it out, and I chuck it onto someone in the front row. I can't even chew gum like Mike. And now what if my coach came to me and said, you know, Dave, you've not been playing very well. You've been struggling. You know, what's your plan to get better? And what if I said, well, coach, I'm going to start wearing some Jordans. I'm going to start chewing some watermelon bubblicious and sticking out my tongue while I play. If that was my plan to get better, that would be ridiculous. I can't just copy the on-court behavior of MJ and get better. I mean, the talent disparity regardless, right? So whoever your sports hero is, that person didn't achieve their excellence by behaving a certain way only during the game. Instead, they do things, what, behind the scenes, things that nobody else will see. They discipline themselves with practice and diet and sleep so that during the game, their responses are almost automatic, And this is really a general principle for almost anything. It'd be crazy if an athlete thought they could just show up on game day and perform without the the behind-the-scenes disciplines. I think of one funny example is um, everyone's, you know, baseball's on everyone's mind with the Rangers winning the series. That was actually a fun thing to watch here locally, um, to see them win finally. And, uh, but what's amazing is whenever they have the, the person, the celebrity come out and throw out the first pitch. And you see what happens whenever somebody tries to throw a ball that length and they've not done the discipline behind the scenes and they don't really know how to do it. It often just falls into the dirt, right? And it's just this tradition that we do with baseball. But we know that for an athlete, an athlete can't just show up on game day and perform without all the the behind-the-scenes discipline in their whole lifestyle and routine. In the same manner, it would be ridiculous for a Christian to think that they can be like Jesus when put to the test if they have not exercised 
in the spiritual disciplines. You, you can't just mimic the in-game behavior. In the life of Jesus, we see this pattern. He might be in a crowd teaching and healing, but then what does he do? He goes off and he leaves the crowd and to be alone with the Father. After he's baptized, what does he do? He spends 40 days in solitude praying and fasting to get ready for his ministry. Now, I have a question for you. Did Jesus really need to do that? Or was he just pretending to need it? When you read the Gospels, it it seems like he was desperate for it. It seems like he was desperate to go be alone with the Father and spend time with him in prayer and fasting. And if he needed the disciplines like that, then why do I think I don't need them? So here's the secret of the easy yoke. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. So many of us would say, we want this life with Jesus, but we're not willing to adopt the lifestyle that's behind it. We say we want to follow him, but is that just an idea, like an abstract idea, or does following him mean that we adopt his practices? You know what word is closely related to the word disciple? You probably know what it is. It's, it's the word discipline. It's the same root word. So in the church today, we have this, this allergy to that concept of discipline. If you say that word in, in a Christian circle, you might get some weird glares and looks like, hey, what do you, don't, don't bring legalism into here now. But I'm trying to help you see a very simple concept today. That there are some general principles that we know to be true in, in all of life. And if we can only see how they apply in our walk with Jesus. So I think I shared this story a couple years ago. I'll share it again. But I shared with you uh, in previous years how uh, several years into our marriage, my wife, she was, a, she was a runner. She loved to go running. And she'd run like five, six miles at a time. And I'm just thinking like, hey, why are you doing all this? Is somebody paying you money to train for something? What's going on here? And I was never a person that liked to run just for the sake of running like she did. And she said, hey, you should start doing this. I think you'll really like it. And I said, no, I know I don't like it. I have no desire to find out otherwise. And, uh, and she just kept kind of pushing me to, to try to go and go for some runs. And, um, and listen, I made lots of excuses and uh, all kinds of excuses. And I would say, well, I went running and, you know, now my knee hurts and now my toe hurts. And, and she says, you got to have the right shoes. And I'm like, wait, basketball high tops aren't running shoes? And uh, so she says, you need to go buy these special shoes. And for me, that also meant getting a special insert for the arch. And this is getting really expensive. So now I have more excuses to tell her about. And I keep at it after a couple of years. And after a while, I begin to notice something that I started to feel different. I felt better. I actually started to kind of like it. And if someone asked me if I love the act of running, what would I say? Do I love being out of breath? Not really. Do I love when my whole body hurts? Not especially. Do I love pain and the agony? Not really. But I don't have to love those things in order to do it. Here's what I learned. We don't have to love the process. We simply need a greater desire for the end results. And this is true about a lot of things. It may not be that you always love the ideas of of praying and reading and fasting and solitude and Sabbath. 
But you don't always have to love the process. You just need a greater desire for the end results. And when you aim at love, discipline will follow. Because when you see God begin to work and move in your heart and your soul and in your being as a result of these things, that will keep you going. And I think you'll start to actually love the the process more. You'll love these things the more you do them. But starting is the hardest part. We know that the beginning is always the most difficult part. So John Mark Comer, he gave some helpful words in a sermon I heard about this recently. And he said this, and to stick with the, the running metaphor again, he said, it's not about trying, but it's about training. So I know that, that some of you all, you have run marathons. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't want those around you to feel inferior this morning. But we know some of you all have done that. And uh, maybe you've got a sticker on the back of your car, the 26.2. Then there's always the people that are like, they did the half, and so they have the 13.1. I always love the guy who gets a sticker that says 0.0. Like, that person is my hero. But we know when you decide to run a marathon, you don't just wake up one morning and say to your spouse, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go run 26.2 miles today. And they look at you like you're crazy, Right? And you don't just wake up morning and go, I'm going to go try to run a marathon today. What do you do? You train for it. And so you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to do a half mile today. Then it's going to be a mile. Then two, three, and four. And you build up to it. You don't just try to go run a marathon. You train for it. And so once you reach that point, you become the kind of person for which running a marathon is possible. It will always be hard. But for that person, it is now possible. Now, for you, if you've never spent time in these disciplines, we don't recommend you attempt some two-hour marathon prayer at 4 a.m. tomorrow. Maybe you set aside just, maybe it's just five minutes. You say, I'm going to set aside five minutes on Monday morning and five minutes on Tuesday morning and five minutes on Wednesday and five minutes on Thursday And five minutes each week, each day this week. And then I think what will happen is you'll realize, I need need more time now. I I really like this. I'm connecting with this. I really need more time than that. And I think you'll begin to crave more time once you start doing this. And, you know, the, the, the word discipline should not be a dirty word in the church. I think of how um, over at Impact Camp every summer, we have our students go to Impact Camp in New Braunfels, and of course they go through training for Impact and those kinds of things. But one thing we do every morning after breakfast is we have them go spend 45 minutes with their Bible, reading and studying and journaling, and also in prayer. And it's always amazing to me to see students do that. I mean, the junior high guys are always like, I thought I was coming to camp, and we're like, ah, sorry, it's boot camp. Sorry about that. But what happens is for them, it might be a lot to kind of, you know, experience at first. But some students you see, they realize, I spent 45 minutes. I've never spent any time with God in his word and in prayer. And suddenly I realize I need more time. That wasn't enough time for me. And some students will have that response. And something we tell them every year is that when you go to camp, 
We know that seems like that's just a thing you do in the morning. It's not a big deal. Just go do it and then come back. But we tell them each year that that time with God is the most important time for them in camp. It's the most important thing we do at camp. It's more important than training. It's more important than all the fun stuff and the bonding stuff. That time with God is the most important thing we do at Impact Camp. And so for you and me, when you think about your day or your week, and you think of all the things that you did during the day, a particular day, ask yourself the question, did I do the most important thing today? Did I spend time with the Father today? Did I do the most important thing today? This is how important I think it truly is. Dallas Willard writes this, Ironically, in our efforts to avoid the necessary pains of discipline, we miss the easy yoke and the light burden. We then fall into the frustration of trying to do and be the Christian we know we ought to be without the insight and strength that only discipline can provide. This is what I think we do. We try to show up in the game and pull it off apart from Christ. That's really, that's a heavy yoke. That's a heavy burden. That's more difficult than, than just taking up his yoke and, and learning from him. It's whenever we follow him in our whole lifestyle that we begin to see his yoke as easy and his burden is light. We begin to see, yes, we can do this. We can do this. We went through the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, and you can think of that sermon as Jesus' yoke. So just think of trying to live out those concepts in that sermon apart from Jesus and spending time with him, being salt and light, not being angry, lustful, or anxious, loving our enemies, not judging other people, trying to be these things without adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. That is a heavy burden for us to bear. Frederick Dale Brunner says, life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his sermon on the mount, his yoke, will develop in us a balance and way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. It might seem odd to us that Jesus uses a, a farm instrument to depict rest. And it doesn't sound like rest to the listening ear. But do you see the genius of his invitation? Life is already heavy, and we're trying to carry it in our own strength. But Jesus doesn't give us some escape. He gives us equipment. And we get to be with him like two oxen in a field, shoulder to shoulder, with Jesus doing the heavy lifting right next to us. I want to share just from my own life how God has used these practices in some various ways to bring me through some uh, tough places in the past. You know, many years ago, I would go to pastor's conferences. Um, we go to a conference about every other year as a staff, and 
And I would, uh, I would say in my late 20s, early th- when I first came on staff at TBC, we're just kind of going through ministry, and we're loving life, and we're loving time here at TBC and everything. And then I would go to these pastor's conferences, and I would hear speakers say things like this to other pastors. We know that many of you are out there, and you're, you're tired, you're burned out, maybe you want to quit. And in my pride, I just thought, you know, what are they talking about? That's not me. It's not where I'm at right now. Then around my mid-30s, I wouldn't call it ministry burnout because I, I, I still loved what I did. But I would say I just, I just hit a wall in my own discipleship to Jesus. And it wasn't just like one thing. It was a culmination of, I think, several things. And I can probably link it back to probably the beginning of that was back in 2013. If you're new here and don't know this story, we had a pastor here on, on staff here at the church for 38 years named Gary DeSalvo and a very faithful, godly man, and he was leading us as a church, and he was uh, struck with cancer in 2013, eye cancer. And it, we knew it was serious right away. Uh, by the way, yesterday was his birthday. So, um, But I think uh, around that time, all of us knew this is serious stuff. And a lot of uncertainty around that um, situation and, of course, he passed away in 2019, six years after his diagnosis. And then six months later, you know, COVID hits, which is even more uncertainty for our church and for our staff and everyone involved. And listen, I'm a person, to let you see my personality, I'm a person that I like security. And so God is just kind of pulling things away and, and making things feel very uncertain for me. And, uh, and so we're all going through difficult times together as a, as a staff and as a church. And so during that season, I would study the Bible, but I would really struggle to pray. And when I did pray, my prayers were often just frenetic and, and crisis-driven. And when the crisis would die down or the feeling of the crisis would die down, I would just feel, I'd just feel exhausted because praying that way can feel exhausting. And then I would neglect prayer in the seasons where I didn't feel the crisis as much. This led to a feeling of detachment from God and also, I think, from people. I would say that I was going through the motions of ministry. I would say I was a, there was a bit of depression going on as well. It just felt like I was living in this dark cloud for that season of time. And at a certain point, my wife, who is a loving wife, but she's also a counselor, she said, I think you should go for counseling. Now, that wasn't the first time she'd ever told me that. But I said, well, you could be my counselor. We could save money. We have a couch. And uh, she said, uh, those are billable hours, and I would charge you double for that. And so I began looking for someone to go see, and a friend of mine referred me to a pastoral counselor that I found down in the, at a place in Austin, and I would drive down once or twice per month over a year and a half, and, and that, that guy was so helpful. He was a retired pastor in his 70s, just a very wise counselor for me to walk through that season of time with. But I began to feel convicted. I'm thinking, I'm driving all this way, an hour and a half there, an hour and a half to get back, uh, paying some money, and I'm driving all this distance to talk with a counselor, but I'm still not talking much with God. Or if I am, it's often just, it's just crisis-driven. So I want to share with you just how God used prayer and his word to pull me out of that season. During that time, I was reading through the Bible in uh, two years, going slower than most people like to do it. 
And I would just read and journal in the morning, but I would still struggle to pray. And I would convince myself, well, I'm, I'm just kind of praying throughout my day, but if I was honest, I wasn't doing that. I was neglecting prayer. It was like my heart had these walls up with God. And once I finished that reading plan, I decided to start picking books of the Bible and just do a deep dive into a particular book for a few months. And for some reason, the book of Exodus just kept coming to my mind, like go through Exodus, because my heart needed an Exodus from the place that I'd been in. And then right now, I'm about to go through, I'm, I'm going through Revelation because I'm a person, I need hope. I need someone that is filled with hope because of God's word. And I believe that you and I should go to God's word expectantly, expecting him to do something in our hearts and our minds as a result of looking into his word. And then more recently, I began learning how to pray through the scriptures, and especially the Psalms. And after a few months of that, one morning I'm out for this prayer walk, and I read this psalm in Psalm 138, verse 3. It says, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. And those words just jumped off the page to me because before, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago how when you start to immerse yourself in God's word and you pray his words back to him, it's amazing what can happen. I see those words on the page. And I think about this idea that I didn't have words to describe that season of time, what I'd experienced, but this verse nailed it because I would say my soul just had felt weak for several years. And for those of you that you either run or you work out, you know those days where you're lifting the same weight or running the same distance, but everything just feels heavier. You, you just feel slower. You're, you're encumbered by life, and you just feel like things feel heavier that day. And that can happen to us spiritually, where I would say for me, everything just felt heavier in my soul during that season. And it shouldn't be a surprise, because Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Whenever we labor in our own strength, life feels heavier. But as I leaned into prayer more, the heaviness began to lift, and I could sense God increasing the strength of my soul, and I can testify you testify to you today that when you take his yoke and you learn from him, you will find rest for your soul. It is true. It is true. I want to share a couple of thoughts that I have found helpful over the years. These words from Jen Wilkin have been especially encouraging to me. She says, for years I have viewed my interaction with the Bible as a debit account. I had a need so I went to the Bible to withdraw an answer. But we do much better to view our interaction with the Bible as a savings account. I stretch my understanding daily. I deposit what I glean, and I patiently wait for it to accumulate in value, knowing that one day I'll need to draw on it. If we don't make those, those little deposits, investing time in prayer and God's word, we'll go to the account and, and make a withdrawal, and it's going to feel empty. 
and there's nothing there to sustain us. These words from Jeremy Kingsley have also encouraged me over the years. We do not read the Bible to finish. We read it to be changed. So we don't go to God's word just to check it off of a list, but we go to it expecting God to change us and to transform us. Our hearts, our minds, our souls. And then lastly, D.A. Carson, pray until you pray. You've been trying to pray sometimes and, you're, and you get distracted like I do. Your mind begins to wander. Emotions might take over. You start to just think other thoughts. And so just a reminder, a simple reminder that you pray until you pray. You pray until you begin truly to have your focus time in prayer with him. So we hope this series has been helpful and encouraging to you. We want to invite you to just come find rest for your souls. And if you're not yet a Christ follower, you've been living a life where you've been straining and striving in your own strength, trying to live this life apart from Jesus. Maybe there's things in your mind where you've been trying to show up in the game, so to speak, and try to pull something off on your own, but you're doing it apart from him without his strength and without knowing how to live the way that Jesus lived. And so maybe today is a first, for the first time in your life, you may want to come to him for salvation and find true rest for your soul in salvation. If that's where you find yourself, I would love to come in and have you come down and talk with me this morning about what it means to follow him and to find your rest in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the way that you modeled this before us when you came here to live. God, you depended on the Father. Jesus, you depended on your Father for sustenance and we praise you for the example that you set for us so that we can look at that and recognize if you needed it like that, then how much more do we need it? God, we pray that you'd help us to see that and to grow into that. God, help us not to see these things as just, as just legalism or rules, but God, help us to see that you truly want us to take up your yoke and follow you and to learn from you. And we will therein find rest for our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen.